Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, 
you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, I speak with Vivek Tawari about his journey from Wharton Business School to Broadway producer and writing a graphic novel about the fifth Beatle, Brian Epstein. And if you're loving the show, the best way you could support us is with a small donation at unmistakabletipjar.com. Vivek, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, my pleasure to be on. Yeah, my, uh, you know, I, I came across you by way of uh, our mutual friend, Michael Roderick, who uh, is really, truly a mega connector and seems to know all sorts of fascinating people. Yeah, he and sure is. When he showed me, you know, the TEDx talks that you gave and, and kind of told me a little bit about your story, I thought, yeah, this is a, a fascinating story about an Indian person who was definitely blazing a very unconventional trail. So on that note, can you tell us um, a bit about yourself, your background, your journey, your story, and how that has brought you to what you're up to in the world today? Sure. So I was born here in New York City, where uh, where you are calling me. And uh, although my parents were born in Guyana, South America, and their parents were born in India. So we are uh, a family of Indian origin. And my father's side of the family is from Uttar Pradesh, and my mother's side of the family is half from Bihar and half from Rajasthan. Um, so India really is uh, is my homeland. And I grew up uh, here in New York, essentially the, the first generation American in my family, um, you know, son of immigrants. And... Um, I found my uh, myself in business school in uh, in 1991. I, I uh, enrolled in the Wharton School of Business, and what was expected of me was to join my family business. And my family business, uh, it, I, it's a bit, a bit, a, it's very diversified. But in brief, it's uh, food products and financial securities. And um, you know, my family expected that if I decided I didn't want to join my family business, then I was expected to become a doctor or an engineer. I mean, these are the things that are expected of, of young people of Indian origin who have some degree of opportunity and means, is that they become doctors or engineers or go into technology or maybe the law, uh, or if they have a family business, they join their family business. And growing up in New York City, as I did, I was born in 73, uh, and it was a fabulous time to grow up in New York City uh, to be exposed to the arts. Um, while my parents didn't work in the arts, they loved the arts. And uh, I grew up on 12th Street, and they were constantly taking me uptown to Broadway and Lincoln Center, and I was seeing ballet and musicals and opera and all that sort of thing. And then as soon as I was allowed out of the house on my own, I was going downtown to places like CBGB's and the Old Ritz and the Danceteria, and I was seeing punk rock shows and early Sonic Youth concerts and sort of the birth of experimental garage rock. And... And uh, so I really grew up with a very well-rounded uh, sense of the arts, and that's what I loved. I loved the arts, and I wanted to work in the arts and entertainment spheres. And so when I found myself in business school, I was, I was very conflicted. You know, I was very stressed out that I was going to wind up in a field that, that, uh, that I was not interested in and that I was not passionate about. And then I was, you know, uh, ironically also stressed out that maybe uh, I wasn't going to wind up in that field and I was going to wind up uh, disappointing my family, um, who I love very much. And uh, so it was a, it was a, you know, it's a trauma that I think a lot of, of young people face. And, and if I may be so bold, I think a lot of people of, of our, uh, you know, ethnic background face. And, uh, and it was during this period that I, I couldn't find a living, breathing mentor um, to help me carve my career in the arts. And instead, what I found was, Brian Ep was the Brian Epstein story. You know, he died in 1967 before I was born. Um, so I describe him as my historical mentor, you know, somebody whose life I've studied since 1991 um, as a model of, of, of both what to do and what not to do. I mean, I think mentors teach you what to do and what not to do. And that's what Brian Epstein really became for me. You know, as a gay Jewish man from Liverpool, uh, you know, going against the grain of what was expected of him to manage a rock and roll band and dream about elevating pop music into an art form, you know, that his, his story really connected to me as a young person of Indian origin dreaming about writing comic books and producing Broadway musicals. So I know that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but I hope that gives you a sense of sort of both the, the practical and the emotional journey that I've taken in the past, uh, you know, 20 plus years. 
Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, that raises a ton of questions. And I think it, it's really interesting that you grow up in an Indian family where you're continually exposed to the arts, because I don't know that that's actually typical. Uh, no, it, it probably isn't. Uh, no, it probably isn't. Although I don't know that it's that unusual um, if, if, you know, for someone growing up here in the city, because mm -hmm. in, uh, in America, in, in New York, excuse me, um, you know, especially in the seventies, eighties, when when for for rock and roll clubs, for example, it was uh, twenty one to drink, but it was sixteen to get in. Mm -hmm. So you know, no nowhere was carding for sixteen. So if you just wanted to see the show, you could get into like any venue you wanted to. Um, so you know, being able to have access to that as just a, a young person getting out of the house for the first time, you know, that wasn't typically unusual for people of my age growing up in the city. And um, and you know, my parents just with a, an interest in the arts, it was there. It was you know, so much of New York is cultural that it was um, you know, it was very easy for them to uh, to, to to bestow that on me. Mm -hmm. Although you're right, you know, I don't know that a lot of Indian uh, families necessarily you know, uh, grow up loving the arts, which is, which I think also is a bit paradoxical because, you know, India has certainly a very, very rich artistic history. Um, but it is what it is, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's going to be a really interesting discussion about all of that, but you know, I think the, the first place I really want to take this is, uh, that whole cultural conflict that, you know, we often face as, as, you know, first generation Indians and, and people who have chosen to do something in the arts and how do you resolve that conflict between sort of going and doing what you love and, you know, dealing with the disappointment that you may face from your family. Uh, it's something that I've wrestled with a lot personally, so I'm really curious. And I, I don't imagine there aren't people listening to this from many ethnic backgrounds who feel very much the same way. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess I guess I, I take a very optimistic look at these things. And, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm a dad now. You know, I have a six-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter. And now that I am a dad... <laughs> I really do get it. You know, I, I understand where um, where our Indian uh, uh, parents and uncles and aunts are coming from when they say we want you to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer because you want the best for your children and those are great fields that that for the most part are stable and lucrative. Mm -hmm. And and now that I'm a dad, I want that for my kids too. You know, so I, I it's funny. Like when I was younger, you know, I didn't totally get it, and now I I really do understand where they're coming from, and and they're not wrong. You know, that doesn't mean that they're right, but they're not wrong, you know, and, and at the heart of that, I think, as being a parent, is, is, is not so much the field itself, but the fact that you want your kids, as I said, to be um, in, in a position that's, that's lucrative and stable, mm -hmm. you know, and so I think that, you know, if you pursue your dreams with passion and persistence and an incredible amount of hard work. I mean, if you choose an unorthodox path for yourself, as I did, everything is more difficult. I mean, my, my, it wasn't my, my path was very rewarding, but it was really hard, you know. However, if you if you pursue your dreams with passion, persistence, and a ton of hard work, like you will get to that place, I believe, where you are making enough money to make you make you, you happy, you know, to you you'll, and you'll be stable. Mm -hmm. And I think if you show your family that, then they will get what they always wanted for you. You know, you, that doesn't mean there won't be a ton of heartache getting there. Sure. You know, when you're sleeping on couches and your parents are thinking you're wasting your life and whatever. But if you keep your eye on the prize, your mind on the mission, you know, eventually when you you know you know, have produced that Broadway show that's a hit, mm -hmm. and uh, and you're you're you know you're get you're getting a uh, good revenue from that. You know, then your family will start to think, huh, maybe there is something to this. And <laughs> he's doing what he loves and he's making good money and he's stable. So that, and that's really what I wanted all along, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, I can relate, you know, and it's funny because I've been going through some personal challenges and I, I realized, you know, really what even though, you know, sometimes it feels like there's this conflict, I realize that my parents have the best of intentions, actually. It's Absolutely. not that they're trying to make my life difficult, but they actually, you know, they want to see it become easier uh, for me. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, you know, amazingly enough, you know, as I'm going through some challenges, I call my dad and, I, and I, in a million years, I never thought he would say this. I actually asked him, I said, do you think it's, it's time for me to quit? And, you know, it's been five years. And, and you know, I said, am I at that point? And he said, um, no, <laughs> which was shocking to me. I, cause I thought all along, all he ever thought I should do was go do something a bit more stable. Um, you know, I want to get into this whole, the entire journey and, and the ups and downs of it all in a second, but there's one other thing that I want to ask you, you know, you mentioned 
having all these sort of cultural and artistic inputs. And this is something that always really intrigues me about people who have creative careers is, you know, how the intersection of all those various um, creative inputs and all that exposure to various art forms has influenced and shaped your worldview and the way you create what you do in the world today. Um, I'm going to ask you to, to ask that again. <laughs> I got a tiny bit lost. Okay. So, I mean, you've been exposed to numerous art forms, uh, throughout yeah. your childhood. Uh, and I guess really, you know, as those things intersect, those are stimuli that become inputs to us. Uh, yep. and I'm curious how that has influenced and shaped what you do as a creator and how that's informed your worldview. Yeah. Well, I mean, like certainly as a creator, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I grew up with my parents, you know, taking me uptown to opera and ballet and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and I, and as soon as I was out of the house on my own, I was going downtown to see punk rock and, and experimental guitar rock and that sort of thing. And, um, and that was very unusual. You know, I, I went to an all boys school called collegiate on the upper West side here in New York. And I remember having conversations with my high school friends, my high school guy friends, trying to explain why I, why I thought, you know, punk rock and ballet were compatible, you know, and, uh, and people thought that was really strange and, and I didn't, you know, I, you know, they thought that was a fairly bizarre duality and, and to me it felt pretty normal. You know, I, I, I sort of didn't, I, some of the things that were going on at the New York City Ballet with the experimental uh, dancing that they were doing, to me, like the stuff that Sonic Youth was doing downtown at the, at the rock clubs, you know, those two worlds were very similar and that if, if the fans of, of each of those worlds would would get over whatever it was their arrogance their fear their whatever um, and just start to experience the other the other side's art you know they would appreciate it and their minds would be blown is what I thought you know and so many years later as I find myself a creator I, I try to always do that to be very multidisciplinary and probably the easiest example is is Green Day's American Idiot. You know, I was one of the producers on that show, and that was literally merging the two worlds of punk rock and Broadway. You know, and everybody said we were crazy, and they said, you know, Green Day fans don't come to Broadway, and kids don't come to Broadway. And we said, that's nonsense. You know, you build a great show and give people something they want to see and m make sure they know it's there, market it to them, and they will come. You know, and so I, I guess I've always tried to do that. I've always tried to work on on shows that that have some personal meaning to me and that maybe in in some small way at least you know push the 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 medium that the that they exist in forward in some capacity um and so I think that is very much a product of, of how I grew up and, and, the, uh, and the stimuli, as I put it, as you put it, mm -hmm. uh, that I was exposed to because I really was exposed to a lot of, of, of what might seem radically different stimuli, but to me didn't feel radically different. And so I, I've always tried to bring, bring those, uh, you know, sort of unorthodox mediums together as a, as a creator. And, you know, on the personal side of things, you know, to give really my family some credit, you know, my grandfather, who really started all those family businesses, you know, he was he was the um, the head of my family, and he was you know like many Indian families, the he was the eldest male, and so he kind of was the head of the nuclear family. You know, when I was growing up, if I ever got in any trouble, it was never I'll tell your dad; it was always I'll tell your grandfather. You know, he was he was the boss, and um, he was a great influence on on me. And he always told me, "You need to do what you love, and you need to work for yourself." You know, and, and that's how you will be both fulfilled and how you will do your best work. And I grew up as a, loving the arts. And, I, you know, to be, to be honest, I, I think when my grandfather said work for yourself, to him working for the family business was working for yourself. I think that's what he meant, you know. So I'm not <laughs> sure when he told me that he was really thinking that he was encouraging me to write comic books. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that's surreptitiously, that, that's what he wound up doing, you know. So, um you know, by, by growing up in this environment that w with an attitude in the back of my head that I need to do what I love and I need to work for myself, you know, that's how I wound up deciding to work in the arts and entertainment uh, industries and be an entrepreneur in those industries. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things I'm really also curious about is how do we, you know, look at the intersection of all the stimuli in our own lives and apply it to the work that we're doing and, you know, find meaning in, in the work that we're doing? Um, you know, I mean, it, it's a, that's a hard question for me to answer because <laughs> it, it feels, it feels to me just like that's how I live my life, you know, 
I mean, I really do go back to that thing that my grandfather said, which is like, you just got to do what you love and you need to work for yourself. And for me, it's like, you know, I never break it down as to like, you know, how do I apply the stimuli that are around me into what I do? It's just like, I try to just work on things that I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really do believe that, that, you know, if there's one message to the Brian Epstein story and it's the mantra I've lived my life by, it's that no dream is too impossible and no person too unlikely to realize that dream. Um, and I guess the, the addendum to that would be, you know, as long as you pursue it with passion, persistence, and a ton of hard, and we're willing to put in a ton of hard work. Mm-hmm. But, it, but if you are, then like, then no, nothing is too crazy or too impossible. So it's, it's, it's never something where I'm like, how do I absorb this into my life? It's like, let me just live my life and live my life with, with passion and, per, and persistence and, 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 and surround myself with people I care about and projects I care about. And if I'm doing all those things, th- then my work will be good work. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not be easy work. You know, I, I, I keep wanting to reiterate that to the audience, like, you know, because I sometimes feel like I'm being very uh, motivational speakerish. Right. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and it's important to realize, like, yeah, I do believe in chasing your dreams. But, you know, if your dreams are unorthodox, then be prepared to work your ass off for them also, you know. Well, actually, that makes a, a perfect setup for where I want to take the story next. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting because we share a similar background. I was in business school and business school ended up being the catalyst for putting me on this very unorthodox path. Uh, and I'm I'm really curious kind of to hear about that moment when you find yourself at Wharton of all places where you think, OK, you know what? I'm not meant to do what is typically the byproduct of a Wharton degree. And also, you know, navigating the emotional challenges of, you know, going down this unorthodox path, especially when it's hard, you know, how you do that. And really, you know, more than anything, I want to hear about the really darker, gritty moments of all of this for you. You know, I I have to be honest, like there aren't a ton of them because like I I just really kept in mind. And again, maybe this is my just trying to be an optimist Mm -hmm. about things. But I, I just tried to keep my, my eyes and my plans on doing things that I loved, you know, and I, and I really do believe that, it, that in that way, it, it really is a matter of perspective, you know, and I think you can really just shift your perspective. You know, if you choose to work in a field that's difficult and as a result, you're like, you know, sleeping on your friend's couch and, and, uh, and you know, getting your buddy to help you, you know, make a plate of ramen noodles to, to eat that evening then like, you know, there are two ways of looking at it. It's like, oh man, this sucks. Like I'm sleeping on a couch and I'm eating ramen noodles. Or the other way to look at it is like, this is awesome. I am finding a way to do what I love, you know? And I think if you, if you, if you, if you keep that other perspective, then there aren't really dark moments. You know, the, dar- the only dark and gritty moments that I've ever faced is when I start realizing that like, or I'm sorry, let me put it this way. The, anytime that, that, that I, something has started to feel dark or gritty, then the, the takeaway message to me is like, then I shouldn't be doing this because that means I don't love it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that means whatever this project is that I've taken on, I'm doing it for the wrong reason. I'm doing it because I think it will make money or I think it will be a hit or I, well, you know, whatever the reason might be, but I'm doing it for the wrong reason. Because if I was doing it for passion, doesn't necessarily mean my life would be easy, but it wouldn't feel dark. Yeah. You know, feel like I'm working on something that there's, that there's a lot of, that there is a very bright light at the end of that tunnel. And, and, and so as a result, like you focus on that light up ahead and, mm. the, and, and it doesn't feel so dark. That's, you know, that's, that's actually a really interesting way of looking at it. And, you know, I, I really appreciate what you said about not choosing to do something for the money, because I can tell you anytime I have tried to make something or create something specifically in the hopes that it would result in some sort of monetary outcome or gain it's always been incredibly unfulfilling and it almost never results in the monetary gain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it, that is something that I very much believe, but, but I will also be practical and say that like, you also need to, you know, pick, pick your projects wisely. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, like I decided to put a, a quote unquote punk rock album on a Broadway stage, but like, like, you know, the band that I chose was Green Day and the album I chose was American Idiot. Mm-hmm. You know, American Idiot is an, an internationally multi-platinum album. You know, it sold millions of copies all over the world. You know, and Green Day are like virtually a household name. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, some of my producer's grandparents knew who Green Day, or, you know, they may not have known their music, but they heard of them, right. you know. And so like, you know, I didn't choose, 
you know, Husker Du, who is another band that I love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Zen Arcade would probably be a really cool musical. But, like, that would be difficult, you know, and, and, and difficult to the extent of I'm not sure that that would be the, you know, monetarily where I should be spending my time, given that I also have a family to feed. Right. You know? And then, you know, but if that's the case and your dream is to put Zen Arcade, you know, onto the stage then maybe you do need to do American Idiot first, mm -hmm. you know, and then, and then benefit from that. And then eventually you'll get to Zen Arcade, you know? So, so I do want to say like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be too disingenuous when I, and, and suggest that like, I've never done anything, you know, with monetary gain in mind, sure. uh, but monetary gain can't be the primary reason. Yeah. If it's the primary reason, then I really do think the project is, is out to fail. However, you know, I don't, when, when, you know, we're talking about theater, like I don't operate in nonprofit theater. There is a very, uh, a very big industry that's nonprofit theater, mm -hmm. and I don't work in that industry. And, you know, and so since I work in for-profit theater, you know, I have investors I need to, I need to you know, take care of and, and make money for. And, you know, that's part of my job is to do right by my investors. And so, so I don't want to be too disingenuous and say that I haven't done things, you know, for the money. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the better way of putting it is I try to balance things. And, and, uh, and, you know, if something feels dark, then I need to take a look at it. And, and sometimes the answer is because, well, the main reason you did this was for the money, you know, <laughs> and like, and, uh, and do you really need to be doing that? And, and, and nine times out of 10, the answer was no. But, you know, really it was nine times out of ten. Like, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, the entertainment field is a, is a very difficult place to make money. And every once in a while, you need to do something to make money. And, there's, and I don't feel any shame in that. I, there's, I also can say that I've never in my entire life worked on something that I wasn't proud of. Um, but there, you know, there are definitely certain projects that I'm, I've been more passionate about than others. You know, that, that's actually really interesting, and I, I really appreciate that perspective, because I think that in a lot of ways, you're right. I mean, we can become almost idealistic as artists and idealistic to a fault where it actually, you know, like you said, you know, sometimes you have to do what you have to do in order to make money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's uh, again, you know, it depends. I mean, I, I suppose it differs for everybody. You know, I suppose there might be some people who you know, are just so wealthy or, or are, you know, have inherited something and they don't, they just haven't had to think about it. I don't know anyone like that myself. You know, even the people that I know that have a lot of money also have a lifestyle that, um, that, that they're used to, that they want to support that, that, you know, makes them need to work hard to, uh, to, to continue to support that lifestyle and, and build their ambitions. So, you know, it's, uh, it, there, there is always a balance there. You know, you've got, I've got a family that I love and I want, you know, we talked about this earlier, you want your, the best for your kids, you know, and, and, you know, if my kids have a dream that's not to become a, a doctor or an engineer or something that's the, or a lawyer or something that might be stable enough to bring in immediate income, then I hope that I can help support them. But I'm not going to be able to help support them if I keep choosing projects that can't make any money. Yeah. You know, so so it's uh there there it it is something you do need to think about, you know. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So, you know, let's do this. Um, I'd love to hear about the early part of sort of the trajectory and the buildup to doing exactly what you do um, and some of the earlier projects that you worked on. And then really, I want to start talking about your entire creative process for all of this. Okay. So, I mean, post business school, you know, you decide you want to get in this career in the arts. I mean, talk to us about some of this. Talk to us about the journey from there to doing the stuff that you're doing today, like the project of Lab Tall. While I was at business school in Wharton, I was also working part-time for Sony Music. Uh, I got a job working for Sony Music as a field rep in the Philadelphia area. So I got my start really at record labels. And um, I guess going all the way back before that, I got an, uh, a music internship at a local music production and publishing company um, in Philadelphia. And so, you know, it was just that that was a, a break into the business, but it was an unglamorous job as an intern. Um, but through that, I started networking and I worked my way up to getting that Sony music gig. And so after I graduated, I moved back to the city, back to New York, and uh, I um, continued to work for record labels. I was working for Mercury Records. Uh, for about three years, and then when Seagram's uh, bought Polygram, which was which owned Mercury and merged it with Universal, which uh, Seagram's had, had already owned, um, you know, budgets were frozen. Everyone was miserable. You know, their people were worried about job security, and it was a moment where I should have the responsible thing to do would probably have been to look for another job. So I started thinking about that, and I thought, you know, my dream has always been to work for myself, as we talked about earlier. And so I said, now is the right moment. You know, I, I've developed a pretty good reputation in the business. And, and while, you know, your Rolodex can always be bigger, I felt like I had a pretty good network already and, and of people who would, would be willing to help me and respected me. And, and uh, I had already started to manage a, a local band on the side. So I had a project. And I thought, you know, rather than spending my time looking for another job, I'm going to set up shop for myself and start working for myself. So I did. Uh, and that was the birth of Tawari Entertainment Group. And I gave it that very vague name uh, because I knew that I wanted to work on a variety of different projects across the arts and entertainment spectrum, even though my prior experience up until that point had been in the music industry. And in a lot of ways, music really is my first love, so to speak. Um, I also knew that I wanted to work in film, television, theater, graphic novels. You know, I, I didn't want to just work in the traditional music industry. And so I gave my company a name that would be vague enough that would allow me to take on any project within the arts and entertainment um, spheres that, that, uh, that I was passionate about. And by being based here in New York City, I thought I should start with theater. You know, theater is, is kind of uh, in my backyard, or Broadway, I should say, is right in my backyard. Um, I suppose if I was growing up in L.A., I might have thought, uh, you know, I should start in film. But I was here in New York, and I thought, let me master the world of Broadway and then I'll start expanding into other mediums. 
Um, looking back on it, I don't know that that's necessarily great advice. I would, <laughs> would caution somebody to necessarily say, you know, uh, that theater and film are are so similar, and you know, one can lead to the other. Um, that being said, I think there is some merit to it, and it definitely worked for me. You know, my thinking was the two aren't that different. You know, in terms of the development process, you know, developing a script, working with writers, working with agents, working with managers, getting a script done, attaching a director, attaching a cast, raising the financing. Um, you know, it's it's it is a similar sort of development process. And in my head, you know, comparing big, big Broadway musicals to big um, films, the budgets on Broadway are 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 in 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 that comparative spectrum much smaller. You have more time to develop. You know, you can launch something out of state and see how it goes. Whereas big films, you know, when they launch, you've got like the first weekend really, or maybe two weekends. And if the film is doing poorly, you know, you're in trouble. Whereas, uh, you know, in in theater, you can maybe take your time a little bit more. Um, so that was kind of um, of my thinking behind the whole thing. And um, you know, again, that that really worked for me. Um, I am, I am, and I do think that that there is a, there are analogies between theater and film that make sense. Although I would would caution somebody to necessarily assume that that's a, that that's a path that they should take. But that is the very much the path that I took, and um, and it really did work for me. You know, I I, I got involved in theater. Uh, I met a group of uh, of gentlemen that were working on a project to open a Broadway Hall of Fame, and that was really basically through networking. I put word out to my network that. I was looking to get involved in theater, and that's how I got introduced to those guys. And that project ended up not happening, but some of those folks moved on to work on Mel Brooks, the producers, and they invited me to join that show. And, uh, and I did, and that was the show that I really learned the ropes from. It was a phenomenally successful Broadway musical and a great show to learn from, and that's how I learned to produce. And, uh, and after that, I, um, I helped with some of the international financing for Hairspray, and that show was very successful. And, uh, and then I lead produced uh, A Raisin in the Sun, and that show was incredibly successful. And so all of a sudden, I, you know, I had a string of successes under my belt. And um, you know, when you've got some successes in entertainment, you know, the next one, I wouldn't say it necessarily comes easy, but it comes easier. Mm -hmm. You know, in theory, you know what you're doing, um, but also people think you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so do doors open for you and uh, doors from, you know, investors being willing to, to part with their, their money and trust you um, to, you know, uh, people, uh, you know, having leverage in negotiating deals. And so I found myself very much focusing on theater. And then, uh, and then it was you know several years after that, as I was developing the uh, the Fifth Beetle, that 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 project felt like a film to me, and uh, so it felt time to expand into film, and that's that's really what we're doing right now. We're to our entertainment group is uh, is branching out into film. Very very cool. Uh, let me ask you this uh, about sort of you know achieving success. You know, often I hear that people have this idea that success is going to drastically change everything in their lives. You know, I had uh, Tucker Max here recently, and he says, you know, he's like, success doesn't make your problems just go away. Uh, you don't, you know, or success doesn't heal the wounds you think it's going to heal. And the question for me, and this is something I've wrestled with a lot, is, you know, before you have success, you have this almost I've got nothing to lose mindset, which I feel unleashes insane amounts of creativity and this really high tolerance for risk that actually leads yeah. to the success. And then all of a sudden you feel like you have something to lose. Uh, and I'm wondering how you maintain that sort of naivete of uh, a beginner who hasn't had the success that actually unleashes that kind of creativity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And you know, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's funny for, for me. I, I mean, I, I hate to sound like a broken record or like I'm really, or I'm avoiding the questions, but it, it really does just kind of all circle back to just being passionate about whatever it is that I'm doing. You know, it's and, and I guess I really have moved around a bit. It's like, you know, I've been enjoying a lot of success in theater and like now all of a sudden I'm doing film. And, you know, when I made that jump into theater, I had no idea what I was doing in theater. And I surrounded myself with mentors and with people who knew better and, and uh, you know, and partners who knew what they were doing. And I learned, you know, and similarly, as I'm uh, moving Fifth Beetle forward, I'm surrounding myself with producing partners and a creative team um, who really know what they're doing. And I'm learning from them. And, you know, so so I guess in some ways, you know, as I've taken on mediums that I didn't know when I started them, you know, that felt very entrepreneurial. That did feel like the, you know, the like bursting into something where, um, you know, where I was the the beginner and the learner. But um, 
but you know, I've, I've, I guess the bottom line for me is like, if I'm working on something that I believe in and that I'm passionate about, you know, then like, then I don't worry about failure. I mean, it's just, it's like, you don't have an option really. Like, I don't really ever find myself sitting back thinking like, Ooh, now I have something to lose. Mm -hmm. You know, if I start doing the fifth Beatle as a film, then and and not focus more intensely on Broadway, I'm going to lose my Broadway background or something. It's like, nah, I got to make a film because this because I'm passionate about the Brian Epstein story, and for a n whole a number of creative reasons, it feels to me more like a film than a Broadway show. So that's what I got to do. Hmm. And it, you know, I, I I just don't sit around thinking about things like what do I have to lose. But but then you know. You know, let me not be too disingenuous. Well, I'll, I'll reiterate also what I said earlier about, uh, you know, financing. You know, like, you know, I need to also make sure that whatever it is that I'm pursuing, as risky or as whatever as it might be, that I've also created a structure, whether it means that past projects are bringing in reliable income or this future project has financial potential or whatever it may be, because I also now have two kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my son started kindergarten this year. And, you know, education in New York City is not cheap. And, you know, so. So I don't want to be too disingenuous about that. Like I, I, I do. It's not that I have nothing to lose, sure. but you know, as long as I, um, as long as I, you know, keep keep working on things that I'm passionate about, and, and make sure that uh, that I'm also working on things that I that I, I foresee, you know, have financial potential in them, and, and I've created a world for myself in which there is a baseline of security. Um, you know, I don't find myself sort of uh, stressing out about uh, about you know having something to lose now that I've got been successful. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this before we get into, you know, uh, your creative process. I'm really just curious, you know, from the perspective that you've had, I mean, you've kind of, you, you, you know, you and I both come from a world in which there actually was not a Facebook at a time, which I know there's probably people listening who can't even fathom such a world yeah. existing. Um, and just given that you've been through the music industry, I'm really curious uh, what your thoughts are on the implications that technology is going to have on the future of the arts and creativity. Um, that's an interesting question. You know, I mean, I, I, um, I'm not a tech guy myself, but I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by technology, but it really does change a lot of the creative process. You know, for me, when I discovered the Brian Epstein story, at, you know, in 1991 in business school, you know, I, as I said, I was looking for a mentor and I couldn't find a living, breathing mentor, so I turned to history, and I thought that the Beatles were the team that wrote and rewrote the rules of the pop music business, so I thought I should study the life of their manager, the guy who did all those things. And, you know, The Fifth Beatle, my book, uh, is the only book in print about Brian Epstein, um, so there, w there were no books that I could turn to. And, you know, in 1991, there was, there were, there was no YouTube there was no Wikipedia. There was no Google. You know, there were none of these kind of online resources that we so take for granted today. And as a result, you know, it became like a little bit of a mystery. You know, I sort of thought, why is it that I can walk into a Barnes and Nobles and find a book about John Lennon's astrologist, and I can't find a book <laughs> about the guy that managed the Beatles? You know, it's like it didn't. It was so strange. And I was like, I gotta uncover this mystery. You know, I got to track down, do old newspaper searches, and I started reading Beatles books, and, and I'd read these 200-page books about the Beatles and get 10 good pages about Brian. But slowly, I painted a picture of the people in his world that, that, uh, that knew him best. And then I literally just, like, you know, pulled down the phone book. You know, I, I joke that that was, like, the most cutting-edge piece of technology back then was the phone book, mm -hmm. you know. Back then, we used phone books, and, uh, and I looked up the, na the names and contact information of people who knew Brian and, and lived within a, a driving distance of New York City or Philadelphia, which I called home in Philadelphia where I was at school. And I just cold called them. And I, I said, you know, I'm a young person who's studying about Brian Epstein and the little bit I know is very inspiring. And, and would you talk to me? And, uh, and the way I describe it is that I, w I was so excited to reach out to these people that I forgot to be intimidated. Mm -hmm. And not one of them turned me away. And it was fabulous. And that launched my... my um, my depth of understanding on Brian Epstein. And as I look back on it, you know, if there had been a Wikipedia or a YouTube or a Google, you know, I probably would have looked up a couple of things and there may have been a chance that I would have read a couple of articles and have satiated my interest and would have moved on to whatever the next thing was. You know, but because the information wasn't so readily available and had to come with effort and with work, you know, it, uh, it, it felt 
more rewarding, more serious, or I was willing to put more of myself into it. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, just for me, psychologically, when something is mysterious, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's more, it's all immediately more interesting. Whereas if something's readily available and right there, it's just less interesting to me. I mean, that's just who I am. Like, you know, and, and so, so I feel like, you know, technology is changing that, you know, you, you don't need to wonder about anything anymore. You know, when you think, oh, I wonder why something this is that way, or I wonder who did this, or I wonder who created that. It's like, you don't really need to wonder. You just pull out your phone and Google it, and, and, or, you know, and, and you can find out, you know, or you can at least find out, you know, in, enough to, to point yourself in the right direction. And I think there's, there's, a, a, there's, a, there's marvelous aspects of that. Um, you know, certainly when we were m making the Fifth Beetle graphic novel, you know, it's a period piece and we were very careful about wanting to capture the period, make sure that the phone booths were accurate and the, and that JFK Air Airport, which was Idlewild, you know, was, was looked accurate and the costumes were, you know, the wardrobe was accurate. And now that we have the internet, like, it's much easier to do that, you know, and you can, you can go to Google Images or, or whatever reference points you need and, and, and study the history of JFK, like, and not have to, you know, spend two weeks trying to, you know, track down somebody who can talk to you, you know, who worked at JFK when it first got the name JFK, you know, and so, so there's certain elements of the creative process that, that it, that I are, that I found have now having it, the internet is invaluable, mm -hmm. but I think there's also elements of it that, um, you know, there's our stymieing, I guess. And you just really need to, to draw out the best parts of it and focus on those. Yeah. And, and I, I guess I would only say, like, don't let technology make you lose your, your, the, the love of, want, of wondering. Mm, I love that. So, you know, one of the things I really appreciate you said uh, in that is that you were too excited to be intimidated. And it's funny. I think that people can sense enthusiasm. I think enthusiasm is just infectious. And when you're enthusiastic about something, people just want to help and be part of what you're doing. I would agree with that a hundredfold. Absolutely. So, well, let's do this. Uh, you know, we're you know we're, we're close, kind of close to about an hour. I want to spend a little bit of time dissecting the creative process for how something like a Broadway musical comes together. Only because you know my creative efforts have involved putting on events. They've involved uh, you know running the show and writing books, but. You know, I have no idea how a film gets made or how a Broadway production gets made. And I'd imagine there's some incredible creative lessons that come from that that can be applied to almost any other artistic endeavor. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I think you are right. So I'd be, be happy to talk about that. Is there, is there any, uh, any particular place you want to start? I mean, really, you know, I mean, what is, how does it start? Is it like I have an idea on a moleskin and, you know, I go from there? I mean, how does it go from something in your head to a sold-out audience, which I realize is a big question. Yeah, well, you know, I'll, I can use, I'll just use a, a current example, you know, that I am um, right now developing a show on Broadway. I'm working with Alanis Morissette uh, to adapt her album, Jagged Little Pill, for the stage. Um, we're very much in the early days. We are, we are talking to writers right now. We haven't, uh, haven't secured our writer yet. Um, as you know, I am a writer, but I'm not planning on writing this. I'm, I'm acting as producer on this. And so, you know, the way that that came about is, you know, in the wake of American Idiot, which was an incredibly uh, fun uh, and successful and critically acclaimed project for me. Um, in the wake of that, and uh, I was was thinking a lot about that I, that mold, that idea of taking you know a very successful, very seminal album and uh, and adapting it for Broadway. And because my background is the music industry, as I said, you know um, that, that those are where my roots go. I got my start working for record labels. You know, I have a lot of contacts in that world, and so I found myself in this this you know somewhat unusual or unique or. Um, you know, I don't know what the word is exactly, a niche that I may, may have built for myself as like sort of the uh, the pop rock Broadway guy. And I, I just was getting pitched uh, an, uh, an, an insane number of, of artists, you know, because I, you know, I knew the managers and I knew the, the rock managers and the booking agents. And, you know, they would all call me and they say, I rep so-and-so and, -so, and uh, we're interested in maybe adapting their catalog or adapting this record for, for the Broadway stage. And so I was getting a ton of those. So this was something that I was very much thinking about. Um, and, uh, and, you know, really what happened is uh, even though I was getting some wonderful opportunities, uh, you know, to work with some, some very high-profile artists and, and, or, and or catalogs, you know, I, I often just didn't see the story, you know. And, and for me, I'm a story guy, and it all goes back to story. And, um, you know, so, so a lot of, the, you know, nothing really made sense to me. I'd be like, oh, I love that catalog, or I love that band or that artist, but... I just, you know, I don't know what the musical would be about. And if you can come back to me or if he or she or they have a story idea they want to b bounce around, like, then let's talk. 
you know. But um, you know, one of my producing partners on Jagged Little Pill, uh, Arvin David, um, to give him his credit, you know, it was initially his idea. You know, as we were talking about this, he he's new to Broadway. This will be his first Broadway show. But he um, he said to me as we were talking about it, he said, you know, what do you think about Jagged Little Pill? You know, I, I've always thought that that would be a really great musical. And I thought, huh. And I went back and I listened to the record, and and I he was absolutely right. You know, those the songs to me really held up. And they feel felt very theatrical. They felt that like they play very big and epic and and bold, like she's singing to the back of the room, to use a Broadway uh, phrase, to use a theatrical phrase, playing to the back of the room. But the content of the songs is so small and interior. You know, it's very personal. It's like she might be singing this big epic song, uh, sonically speaking, but the content is this is what happened to me last weekend or last summer. You know, and that to me is the hallmark of a great musical song. You know, where where that's very personal and 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 you really feel like you're getting to know the character through the the material, but it also plays very big and epic into the back of the room. So. Um, you know, I didn't know Alanis's management uh, directly at the time, um, but the music industry is a very small world, and um, and I had had been operating successfully in it, and so I got a referral to to her manager, and uh, explained the, my ideas and what we kind of were thinking for Jagged Little Pill, and uh, the manager said Alanis is is going to love you, and she's going to love these ideas, and let me uh, let me get you guys together so that you can talk to her. And we did, and, and she did very much like kind of the, the ideas that I had for it and how we wanted to roll it out. And then we were sort of off to the races. And then, and then you know, the next step is obviously the legal side of things, like legally, you know, securing the, the rights to the music publishing with the, the publishers. And, and, you know, Glenn Ballard is a, co-wrote those songs, so we have to involve, uh, you know, his music publishers. And, you know, so there, there's a number of legal stuff and, and, you know, all of a sudden getting the lawyers and the business folks on board. So that, that's, the, that's what happens then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, you know, we we are now starting to talk to writers. You know, we put a small list of writers together that um, that we think are are appropriate for, um, you know, for kind of the take and the the tone and the vibe that we want for the piece. And then reach out to them. And simultaneously, you know, a high profile project like this, we announced it, and it got pick up all over the world. You know, reported that it was happening, and so a handful of great writers reached out to us saying, I heard you're doing this and are you looking for a writer? And, you know, so we would just kind of hone in on that list and we're just meeting with, uh, with the best of them. And, and, uh, you know, Arvind and I will take those first meetings and then, and then we'll set the writer down with Alanis, you know, so we'll be the first filter and, you know, and, and then, uh, and then she'll meet, meet, uh, who we think are the best of the lot. And then, and that's kind of where we're at right now. But then after that, you know, we will pick our writer and, uh, you know, we'll start working on a first draft of the book. Uh, book is the phrase that is basically a musical script. It's called a book. And, um, and then we'll probably put together some sort of workshop that will be a, um, you know, a sample of the show. It might be a couple of songs with very loose choreography. It might be a whole act. You know, it depends on kind of how the, how the show kind of works itself out. And then I suspect for something like this, we will plan on doing some sort of out-of-town tryout. And we'll just mm-hmm. build the show. And at some point start to attach director and cast and and then start reaching out to investors and start raising money you know put it, putting a budget together knowing how much it's going to cost and raising the money and then talking to theater owners and booking a theater and and then uh, scheduling it and hiring a marketing company and working with that marketing company to market your show and then you're just kind of off to the races at that point wow you know, the thing that I hear as, as I listen to you describe that is, you know, uh, what our friend Peter Sims uh, calls little bets. It's a series of things that you do that give you feedback and then you just keep iterating on that until you get to sort of the end result of what you're looking to do. Because I think that most people think of something as big as a Broadway production. They're like, OK, that, that sounds crazy. How could I possibly pull off something that massive? Yeah, I mean, it really, it, it's that, uh, that's an interesting way of putting it, little bets, you know, because it, it really does, it does, it does start in, I mean, you know, this is why Broadway shows and, and film for that matter as well, you know, they take years and years and years to put together. Mm-hmm. And that's because they really do start in with baby steps. Yeah. You know, let me ask you this. Um, are there any moments where, you know, that, like that moment when you say, okay, that's it. Tickets are on sale. Do you ever have a moment of shit? Like, this is terrifying. And the only reason I ask that is because, you know, one of my personal experiences of, of putting on a, an event was oh my god we just signed with the venue and now we're, our asses are on the line we have to sell these tickets yeah 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are definitely those moments, but again, it's you know, to me, that's a matter of, of perspective. Like, yeah. you know, there I, in those moments for me, I, I definitely have some, you know, uh, I guess what you would call stereotypical uh, negative emotions, like sure. anxiety and concern and that sort of thing. But I also try to focus on on the positive emotions, which is the excitement that we're there. You know, mm -hmm. so so I never wind up feeling. You know, the word you use was terrified. Right. You know, at, at at worst, I'll feel. You know. Um, anxiously excited, hmm. um, and that to me would would be would be my advice in those moments is really just uh, you know just just try to focus on the uh, the the excitement of of reaching that stage as opposed to um, you know the 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 fear of is it going to work? Right. I love that idea of anxious excitement. That's a that's a really good way of reframing it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, Vivek, this has been just mind-blowingly interesting. Uh, I think you're actually the first Broadway producer I've ever had here at the Unmistakable oh, Creative. Well, I hope I'm the first of many. Yeah, well, uh, so do I, because this has been really, really mind-blowingly cool. So, you know, I want to wrap with my final question, uh, which is how I close all my interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What is it, I mean, after seeing all the artists that you've seen, producing all the work that you have, that you think makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. You know, I guess, uh, I guess I'm going to go back to this word that you've probably heard me use over and over and over again on this call. And that's passion. You know, I really do believe, you know, if somebody or some project or team or whatever is really passionate about whatever it is that they do, that will shine through, you know, cause passion equals and equals enthusiasm and excitement and, and passion is tied to dreams and, to me, that that that's that's what it's all about. It's all it all boils down to passion. Awesome. Well, Vivek, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights with our listeners here at the Unmistakable Creative. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It really has been an honor. Awesome. And for those of you guys listening, I'll link up uh, things that Vivek has mentioned in the show notes. Definitely check out the TED Talk that he did. It's really really cool. And we will wrap yeah. the show with that. Yeah, if I can, if I if I can make a make a quick plug, if you're interested in uh, in learning more about me and my projects, you know, you can go to fifthbeetle.com, and we have a mailing list there. And Fifth Beetle also uh, is on Facebook at the Fifth Beetle, and we're on Twitter at, at Fifth Beetle. And we do expect to be making some uh, some exciting film announcements in the next handful of months. The film is on track to shoot next year, so please do follow us and and uh, and and uh, support that that those efforts. And if you're interested in just keeping tabs on me and my projects in general, um, my company website is tawarient.com, T-I-W-A-R-Y-E-N-T.com. And I am personally on Twitter at, at, at Vivek J. Tawari. Awesome. And uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. 
code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.